My name is Mark McGuinness, and this is the 21st Century Creative, the podcast that helps you thrive as a creative professional amid the demands, the distractions, and the opportunities of the 21st century. Welcome to a special season of the 21st Century Creative. If you're new to the show, my name is Mark McGuinness. I'm a poet and a coach for creative professionals based in the UK. And I make this podcast to share what I've learned on the creative path, as well as the wisdom and experience of the amazing creators who I interview. And if you are a returning listener, welcome back. I know, it's been a while since we were together. There are several reasons for that, but the most exciting one is I wanted to do something different this season. And it took me longer than usual to create a new type of season for you. And I'm pleased to say that for the first time ever, there is a theme a concept, an overarching plan for the podcast season. And that is creative disruption. In the last two and a half years, we've all been massively disrupted by the COVID-19 pandemic. Not only the human tragedy of millions of lives lost, but also the social and economic damage caused by the virus and our attempts to control it. In particular, the pandemic has had a devastating impact on many sectors of the arts and the creative industries, and on the lives and the livelihoods of creative professionals like you and me. Fortunately, hopefully, fingers crossed, we are moving towards a better place with the pandemic. Now, I'm aware that there are 21st century creative listeners all over the world, so your experience may be very different to mine here in the UK. But overall, the introduction of vaccines and new treatments and more flexible regulations means that more and more of us are getting closer to some semblance of normal life. So, a big thank you to the medical researchers. <laughs> Never let anyone tell you that science is not creative. And so, I want to use this season as a way for us to pause and gather our breath and see what we can learn from what we've been through and to give you some inspiration and ideas for not just surviving, but also thriving in the new landscape that we find ourselves in. So, for this season, I have assembled a lineup of guests whose work was severely disrupted by the pandemic, but who responded by doing something new and creative. They were locked down, they were shut down, they were grounded, they were forbidden to go out to work or to perform for their audience or to sell to their customers or to work with their clients in the ways that they had always done it. They had to cancel tours and plays and films and workshops. 
They had to make ends meet when their main income, in some cases, had been cut off and government support was in short supply. They had to deal with isolation, illness, strain on their mental health. Some of them had to homeschool while trying to work. Others were responsible for teams of employees and had to make tough choices about whether or not they could keep them on. And in the face of all of this, they kept their creative spark alive. They found the energy and the courage and the faith to do something new, to try something different, to experiment. They pivoted or they reinvented themselves by doing new types of creative work or finding new ways to bring their work into the world. And some of them looked outwards to their peers and their colleagues, to the wider industry and community, to see what they could do to help in the crisis. All of them had to dig deep and draw on reserves of creativity and resilience that they'd never had to use before. And they produced results. New artworks, new products and services, new income streams, new audiences and customers, even, in some cases, whole new businesses. New ways to live and work and thrive in the 21st century. So, these are the stories I've collected for you in the creative disruption season of the 21st century creative. To make the season as useful as possible, I have deliberately focused on those arts and creative industries that have been most disrupted, including theatre, music, TV and film production, in-person live events and experiences. I also did my best to get a global perspective on the crisis. The pandemic played out in different ways in different parts of the world, with different approaches to dealing with it and different challenges for creatives. So I cast my net wide and I'm pleased to say I have stories from creatives in seven different countries spread across five different continents. My guests include a music manager who had to cancel a client's big tour and then figure out what she could do for her artists in a world without gigs. A street photographer who was confined to his apartment block and found himself making a new type of art. A group of TV and film producers who watched the lights go out on productions all over the world and suddenly realised the solution was staring them in the face. An agency owner who had to let go of most of her staff, but who created a whole new business based on an idea she'd been incubating for years. A parenting and homeschooling expert who suddenly found her knowledge was in great demand. And an actor who used the cancellation of her next film as the incentive to create a project she'd never quite got round to starting. In today's episode, we start our journey with Stephen Kunis, a theatre director whose new production was put on hold when the coronavirus hit London, but who hated the idea of putting a stage show on Zoom. 
So instead, he created a brand new show, blending elements of live theatre and cinema. So that's a taste of what's in store for this season. (laughs) And believe me, it wasn't easy finding all of these people. As you can hear, I was looking for a very particular kind of person and to get the right cross-section of different creative fields, also to get stories from around the globe. So I had a great start on my quest when I invited people in the 21st Century Creative Patreon group and also on the mailing list to send me their stories, which resulted in some great guests joining the lineup. I also put feelers out via my own network. I did a lot of research online, and in some cases I emailed people who'd never heard of me and invited them onto the show, and they were brave enough to say yes. So, a big thank you to everyone who helped me to assemble this season's lineup. Some people were really generous and helpful in opening up their networks to me and helping to make the season possible. So, those are my guests. And in the final episode of the season, I will complete the picture by sharing my own experience of the pandemic. So we will go behind the scenes of the 21st Century Creative and I'll talk about the creative and business challenges I faced and what I've learned from them. But before we go any further, I want to say something important. When you listen to the stories in this season, please, please don't feel discouraged or give yourself a hard time if you didn't reinvent yourself or do something radically new and different during the pandemic. You know, there was a lot of talk at the start of lockdown that now all the excuses would evaporate and we could finally get round to writing our novel or movie script or painting our masterpieces or learning Mandarin or whatever. And understandably, there was a bit of a backlash to this idea because, of course, for many of us, lockdown was an incredibly stressful and challenging time. And as I say, it wasn't easy for me to find these stories of reinvention because most people were doing their best to survive, to take care of themselves and their work and their families. So if that's you, you were in the majority. I'm sharing these stories because they are the exception to the rule, because I think we can all learn something from their example. And for the record, I didn't reinvent myself either but I'm happy to learn from the people who did. Okay, that is what's coming in the creative disruption season, starting today. On the subject of global disasters, no sooner had we dared to hope that the pandemic was easing up than Russia invaded Ukraine. Here in Europe, the war is like a huge dark cloud hanging over the continent, and obviously the ripple effects are spreading around the world. And the war feels dispiritingly 20th century. This dinosaur from the Cold War has lumbered into view and we have to deal with it. And the Ukrainian people are the ones taking the brunt of it. And obviously, this is not something I can address on this podcast. There are things we can all do as citizens, depending how it affects us. I was very glad to be a part of the Poets for Ukraine event back in March. But my job here on the 21st Century Creative is to help you 
as a creative professional to weather the shocks of the 21st century. So that's what we will focus on this season. Obviously, with our thoughts with everyone who is affected by the war. Okay, as you can imagine, quite a lot has happened in my life and my work since the last season. I'm not going to go into detail about it today. I'll kind of sprinkle that throughout the season because there's a few new things to tell you about, including my new poetry podcast, A Mouthful of Air. My coaching practice is, of course, ongoing. And later on in the season, I will talk a bit about what it's been like to coach creatives through the pandemic. If you are interested in getting my help one-to-one as a coaching client, I work exclusively with experienced creatives who have at least 10 years or so of track record in their creative field and who either want to step things up in their current work or who are ready for a pivot and a change of direction. And this is going out in summer 2022. My coaching schedule is full right now. But if you're curious about starting work together in the autumn, do get in touch. Go to 21stCenturyCreative.fm slash coaching questions, where I have some, you guessed it, coaching questions to help you start to find some clarity about the kind of change you want to make. So answer the questions there and I'll be in touch within a few days. Okay, one final thing I would like to highlight today, and this is very much open and available right now, is the 21st Century Creative Members Group on Patreon, where we are gearing up for another season of working on our goals together. I'll tell you a little bit more about the group later in today's show. But before I get to that... I have a little something to say about your daily creative diet. Eat a live frog first thing in the morning and nothing worse will happen to you for the rest of the day. This quote is often attributed to Mark Twain. Apparently, there's no hard evidence linking it to him that hasn't stopped it from concentrating the minds of many people when they ask themselves what they should do first on a Monday morning. About 20 years ago, Brian Tracy wrote a classic productivity book called Eat That Frog, Get More of the Important Things Done Today. The book is based on the idea that doing your most difficult and important task every day is essential for success. Specifically, Mr. Tracy defines a frog as your most important task of the day, i.e. the one you are most likely to avoid and the one that will have the biggest positive impact on your work and life. And obviously the idea of eating a live frog isn't very nice, even for the carnivores. But just to be clear, Tracy is not talking about prioritising the most unpleasant task in your to-do list, but the one that's going to have the biggest impact. So, obviously, the point of the analogy is that, faced with a difficult and important task, we're likely to experience resistance to doing it, and we're in danger of procrastinating and avoiding it. 
and never quite getting it done. And it's absolutely true. The more days you eat your frog, the more you do those difficult, challenging tasks that will have a big impact, inevitably you will be more successful, however you define success. And for creative professionals like us, what the frog boils down to, so to speak, is usually either doing some challenging creative work or having a difficult, emotionally charged conversation. So, this is the artist or the writer showing up to do their work every day. Or the freelancer doing what it takes to find clients. Or the actor embracing the uncomfortable emotional journey of a challenging role. And when it comes to conversations, it's about broaching that difficult subject with a colleague or someone who reports to you, or maybe your boss or your client about being willing to engage with them in a heart-to-heart rather than hiding behind email or sweeping the problem under the carpet. So, I have no argument with the central theme of Brian Tracy's book. It's an excellent book, and I certainly recommend you check it out. And I'd like to add another course, a dessert course, to the diet he prescribes. Because one thing I've noticed is that eating the frog can get you a certain level of success and will certainly help you avoid the fate of the amateur. You know, the person who's always struggling, who's all talk and no action. But one thing I've noticed from coaching successful creative people is that the most successful ones don't just live on a diet of frogs. They also treat themselves to a generous slice of cake. In other words, they do the fun things as well as the hard things. They read books, they go to the movies, they watch TV, they go to shows and exhibitions, they subscribe to their favourite magazines and listen to podcasts, they join clubs and societies in their creative field where they can meet up with stimulating and fun and occasionally silly people. They go to conferences and meetups and parties. They go on holiday, they have fun with their family, they have hobbies and interests outside of their work that they do for fun, for the hell of it. In other words, they don't deny themselves pleasure. They see it as integral to what they do. It helps to keep them stimulated and energised and buoyant and resilient in the face of challenges. You know... If you had a good time at the weekend, or if you enjoyed watching a great movie last night, or if you're looking forward to a coffee with a creative friend later today, it's actually a lot easier to sit down on Monday morning and say to yourself, OK, now it's time to get down to work. Because on some level, you feel it's worthwhile. You're rewarding yourself for your efforts. And it's not just about the fun things around the edges, the rewards for work, and the perks of being a creative. Because one of the weird things about creatives is that we actually enjoy our work. So, Rich Litvin, who you may recall I interviewed back in Season 3, has a distinction he uses with his coaching clients, who are all high achievers. And that is between easy and effortless. 
Because very often he catches his clients avoiding something that they're really good at and which creates a lot of value because it feels too easy. They feel like work should feel like work. It should feel hard and unpleasant and maybe boring. But Rich likes to say, well, (laughs) it's actually effortless for you because you're working at a really high level, but it's certainly not easy. Look at the level of skill the amount of experience you have. Look how long it's taken you to get to the point where you can get into flow in that kind of work. And don't discount that, because very often that's where you add the most value. It's certainly where you find the most fulfilment. Remember the research that I keep talking about here on the podcast into creativity and intrinsic motivation. The findings demonstrate that pleasure is intrinsic to highly creative work. So enjoying your work, at least sometimes when you're in the flow, is not optional for creators. It's essential. This is something I'm being reminded of with my poetry podcast, A Mouthful of Air, which on one level is pure self-indulgence. You know, I spent yesterday morning recording a very shouty speech from Shakespeare's play Measure for Measure, which was terrific fun. (laughs) My wife was down the corridor and she heard me yelling out the speech and said, you sounded enthusiastic this morning. And of course I did, because I needed to put quite a bit of oomph into that speech. But the thing is, that was my Monday morning. That was my job. That was part of my mission to share poetry with my listeners. And so I mustn't discount it just because it's fun. So don't avoid the difficult tasks that will make a big difference. But don't deny yourself pleasure either. Eat that frog, but eat the cake as well. The producers would like to make it clear that no frogs were harmed in the making of this podcast although cake may have been consumed. As I mentioned earlier, the 21st Century Creative Members Group is now active on Patreon. And if you'd like to join us, it's a great way to get more out of the podcast season by deepening your creative practice. We did it for the first time last season, and it was a great success. So I'm going to make it a regular feature of the show. The group runs for the 10 weeks of the podcast season. We get together in the members area in Patreon, and we start off by setting ourselves a goal that we want to work on over the next 10 weeks. It could be a creative project, or a new habit, or a change in the way you communicate, or a goal for your business, or something else that will give you a sense of achievement and also move your creative career forward. So, I'm going to kick off the season this week with a video where I share my own goal. And I've got something that I am excited and appropriately nervous about. And then the other members of the group will share their goals. And after that, we play full out and we encourage each other during the season. 
And then at the end of the season, we all review our progress and see what we achieved and what we learned from the process. I will also do some Q&A sessions. So if you've ever been listening to the podcast and thought, well, that's all very well, Mark, but how does it apply to my situation? Or can you help me with this thing that I'm working on? The Patreon group is the place to go. As with the last season, I want to make the group as accessible as possible, given that economic conditions are a little challenging right now. So I am keeping the membership fee as a pay-what-you-want subscription. There is a minimum contribution of a single dollar per episode, or the equivalent in your currency. If you are in a position to contribute more, and you would like to do so, that would of course be terrific. The funding goes towards the production of the podcast, and it helps to make the show self-sustaining while maintaining the high production standards you have come to expect. But you are very welcome to join the group, whatever you are able to contribute. So you can find out more about the 21st Century Creative Members Group at patreon.com slash the 21st Century Creative. That's patreon.com slash the 21st Century Creative. I hope to see you there. As a Shakespeare enthusiast, I've read quite a bit about the closure of the Elizabethan theatres due to outbreaks of plague in London. But I never dreamed I would live through a time when not just the London theatres, but theatres all around the globe would be closed because of disease. Like all performing arts, theatre was especially hard hit by the pandemic. You know, the essence of the theatrical experience is getting lots of people together in a tightly packed space to experience emotions together. So you get a lot of oohs and ahs and laughter and shouting, which makes it a deadly arena when there's an airborne virus on the loose. So it was a big priority for me to have an episode about theatre in the creative disruption season. And I was lucky enough to meet Stephen Kunis, a director who has leaned into the challenges of the pandemic and come up with some very creative new ways of making work and staying connected with audiences. Stephen is a Greek-American theatre and opera director, currently based in London. He is the founding artistic director of Panorama Productions, a company committed to international collaboration in the fields of theatre and music. In 2021, his UK premiere production of Young Jean Lee's Straight White Men at Southwark Playhouse was nominated for Best New Play at the Off West End Theatre Awards, and Stephen himself picked up a nomination for Best Director along the way. It was also named by Sam Marlowe at the iNewspaper as one of the top 10 theatre events of 2021 and garnered four-star reviews in The Evening Standard, The Guardian and The Times. 
Stephen was previously nominated for Best Director at the Off West End Theatre Awards in 2019 for his production of Asher Gelman's play, Afterglow, at the Waterloo East Theatre. He is an ongoing member of the Young Vic Genesis Creators Network and in 2020 was named an emerging leader by the Claw Foundation. Stephen says that he aims to make theatre that allows us to feel closer to one another and to collectively imagine better possibilities for how we might all get along. His commitment to bringing people together in the theatre meant that when the pandemic first struck, he was sceptical of the idea of simply moving theatre productions online. So he put the production of Straight White Men on hold. But he's always had a creative approach to constraints, and in response to the closure of theatres, he came up with a completely new production, Rocky Road, based on a script by Sean McKenna, and combining elements of live theatre and cinema. My wife Mammy and I watched the play online and we found it gripping, and in a way that felt much more like watching live theatre than streaming TV. And when restrictions were relaxed and theatre returned to the stage, Stephen and Panorama were in the vanguard with the revived production of Straight White Men. At Stephen's invitation, I went to see the play at the Southwark Playhouse, very close to Shakespeare's old stomping ground. It was my first experience of live theatre since the pandemic, and it was a really intense experience. Not only because of the quality of the play and the production, and also, as we say in the interview, because of the cocktail of joy tinged with fear that we all felt as we crowded into the theatre once more. In this interview, Stephen talks about his unusual start in theatre and he describes the ahem, rocky road through the pandemic for himself and his colleagues. He unpacks the pros and cons of live performance versus online media. He also talks about the importance of looking for a creative opportunity in a set of constraints and shares his thoughts on some new possibilities for theatre going forward. This is a really inspiring conversation and it feels like the perfect place to start our journey through the pandemic in the creative disruption season. Steve, when did you first fall in love with the theatre? Well, I mean, I always, I, I always had just the base attraction to it because it was one of the few things that I was, I, I had fun doing as a student in mm-hmm. school. But again, even at that, and, and it was always an, a, a mainly a social outlet for me to. Again, I went to a, a, a very sporty school right. where academic, ac- academics and arts were not as 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 valued as say the sports scene. Mm-hmm. So I actually, I didn't really have my thing until. Um, I found that space. Um, I think it was a production of Inherent the Wind, but um, where I think I played a member of the jury and just made funny faces here, um, <laughs> here and there at the, the the drastic reveals that were going on at that at, in in whatever scene we were doing. Mm-hmm. And it's I I don't know if I don't think that was when I caught the bug though, just because I felt that was that was just a very fun experience for me. And 
again, like with the um, my my parents who sort of came from um, working class immigrant immigrant backgrounds, it was not the type of path that you would even begin to consider as a career, let alone if it was something that interested you enough mm. to pursue in such a serious way. Um, I actually went to college to, for all intents and purposes, to be a scientist. Oh, really? Um, so I studied neuroscience. I studied neuroscience in my undergrad, um, and found immediately still that there was an enormous theater scene that I could still pursue um, in a very fun way. And then, basically, I went. I went through. I, I ended up taking a theater class where, again, I thought I would just take this as a fun elective class, but really changed my approach to um art making in the sense um but so basically by the end of my uh, of my four years uh, of college i i didn't i i and i again at this point i had been ushering for the american repertory theater i'd seen amazing productions by um uh the worcester group or um these are experimental theater companies in new york like elevator repair service the team mm-hmm. I, d- I remember this one production by rachel chavkin called um uh, natasha pierre and the great comet of 1812 which was this electro pop opera adaptation of war and peace <laughs> um or or this other or one of the most amazing productions i remember it was called woody says it was about um woody guthrie the folks yeah. the, the american folk singer and what was uh, there were hootenannies after every show where the uh, the, the um, where basically the audience learned this that there was this post show activity that some audience members themselves had actually started after one of the shows. So then more audience members kept bringing their own instruments to uh, upcoming shows and then staying in the lobby of the theater afterward for no. an hour or so afterward just to create this communal experience of art making from the audience's perspective, oh, which I found wow so inspiring. You can create creativity mm. for a community. Um, and I guess what I was so amazed at was the level of, of not, it was the, the idea of community as a theater subject, which was so exciting to me. Um, and, the, and not just the idea that we go to watch a story of a community on stage to learn about things, but also the fact that those productions created communities of audiences and that really facilitated the creativity of that community to make meaning or camaraderie with the other people in the room with them, which just felt so counterculture to me in terms of everything I'd grown up with, especially at um, in academic institutions where you're very much in, you're very much made to feel like you're on your own and life is about your own individual advancement and progression to see something so antithetical and so meaningful to, at least to me in terms of my values to see an, an art form that that whose prime subject was togetherness and how we can find ways to always reinvent how we exist together in a room um, was really inspiring. Because that's, that's really counter to the myth, isn't it, of the, the individual solitary genius? Mm, absolutely. And that's the main thing I learned as a, as a, a, as a creative, because I think, again, I, I was always a very anxious kid and I always put a lot of pressure on myself to... I don't know, either deliver on a prop, on a, a problem set or a paper or in a, even a theatrical production. And I think even going in as a first time director, you're always expected to yeah. have all the answers. Um, but, but actually you, 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 you don't have all the answers. You can't have all the answers and really you shouldn't mm. have all the answers to what it is you're working on. Cause you have all these other amazing brains in the room um, to help tell the story, the story that you're working on in a really innovative way. And if you don't lean on 
your other collaborators, then actually I think you make the play smaller than you. <laughs> um, if you decide, if I decide what this play is before I even do it and don't use the vast intelligences of, of the people I've chosen to work with me, then what am I here to do except to tell you what I already know? Um, right. And it, it was so freeing for me as an artist to say, oh, wait, there's 20 other people in this room where I can find the best idea, but also um, to find better ideas <laughs> um, in terms of anything that I, that I could ever make on my own, which was just tremendously freeing for someone who was very locked <laughs> creatively. And I think I just found a space for myself where... I got to be the person I wanted to be. <laughs> um, and and guess rehearsal became that sort of sacred space where I could let go, trust others, and really learn and really open myself up to experiences that as, as a person in the rest of the world, that didn't really get to happen so much. And so I, I, I've learned as much from my craft as much as I hopefully have contributed to it. Okay, so you, you discovered this sacred space of togetherness and discovery. And but how did you end up transitioning that into a, a, a career or a profession? I don't know if you think about it in those terms, but in, you know, that you're actually putting on professional shows and this is your work. Yeah. I mean, I, that, that, that's the first thing I'd want to say is that when I was starting out, I had no idea mm -hmm. how I would do that. Um, and I, something someone told me once, um, and this was only about a couple of months ago, and I think it's a really great piece of advice is not think about what you want to do, but what you want to be, hmm. because then you'll figure, you'll, the rest of it, you'll figure out then along the way, as long as you have that goal, the kind of person you want to become, whether that's a, a writer, a storyteller, a director, um, you can then fumble your way there um, as long as you have that endpoint in mind. And I guess I sort of had, I, I knew in my heart, I really wanted to do that, but I didn't have the confidence or really the resource to go out and be a freelance artist at that point, which everyone knows there's so many things that have to fall into place really for that to be a sustainable path for you. So at the end of college, I, I, I ended up getting a fellowship to, to study in the UK mm -hmm. at Oxford. And what I've, I, I was trying to figure out, cause again, I didn't have any proper training as a director. I didn't, and I, I didn't, didn't have really the experience to go to drama school at that point. But this fellowship was based, it was called Cognitive and Evolutionary Anthropology, which was a 12-month master's. And what it allowed me to do with that, with, um, with that money was to basically create my own study investigating the neuroscience of theater audiences. That program was all about evolution and what evolutionary benefits were conferred upon us through cultural habits, like sitting around a campfire and listening to stories. And one of the takeaways from the study I did was that basically um, listening to emotionally arousing stories and sitting in a room with other people while that has happening, it, it, it incentivized or incentivizes the wrong word, but it, it cultivated um, what they called um, perceived sense of social mm -hmm. bonding with others, how close you felt with the people you experienced that with, but then also collective creativity. So essentially, you, if, you would, if you would have someone watch this Benedict Cumberbatch film that was really emotionally arousing and you watched it with yeah. four other people, and then there was someone else who watched something that was just a, a fact-based documentary by themselves and put them all on these creative tasks together. So the people who were under the more emotionally arousing film-watching condition and watched it with other people tended to perform better with their, co their colleagues 
um, on this creative test than they did the people who weren't emotionally aroused and watched something by themselves. So there's there's something there's some like, it's the reason that the Greeks basically made their their sub their citizens go to the theater right to wrestle with issues of the state in hmm. a communal environment and. I think that was when I found fundamentally what about the art form interest me, interested me was that that collective, creative, enhancing world, that, war, that, that space where we could learn to think better together and exist together, um, which I think, again, is so counter to a lot of the cynicism of our yeah. world at the moment. But anyway, going to answer your question about how I got into the industry. So I think at that point, I, I, I was doing all this stuff, but realizing... Um, I was still making my own work um, in the basement of a pub theater um, and really being pulled away from my research so much. I think I just basically realized I was a veterinarian who wanted to be a dog, (laughs) um, who was studying this thing for so long and realizing, no, I just need to go out and do the thing. Right. Um, And I needed to stay in the country. So I needed to stay in the country and have a visa. And so Oxford had, and a lot of universities here have, so for any artists who are not from the UK to think about this, it's called the Graduate Entrepreneur Visa. I think they now call Mm -hmm. it the Startup Visa, where basically you can pitch to your sponsoring university um, an idea for any kind of company or um, social or um, economic enterprise that you think that you think will contribute to UK, the UK economy or UK life in some mm-hmm. productive, good way. And I pitched my current company that I run, Panorama Productions, that was based around international collaboration in the theatre in the UK post-Brexit. And so for me, um, that was that. That was sort of the incentive: was to stay in the country, make work, necessity, breeding any ideas that I could have because I was otherwise quite stuck. Um, I ended up getting sponsored and getting seed funding for my first set of shows, um, and then it became a really great stick, um, as opposed to a carrot, saying, "Well, you need to keep making your own work to stay yeah. in the country," and that became really the impetus for my own journey here, making work. And again, this was all coming in the background of. I, as, a, as, a, as a starting out artist, I was trying to get residencies in the major theaters. I was as an, as an assistant director, an associate director, or any kind of learning capacity, and I just couldn't get into any of them. <laughs> um, either I didn't have the experience or the right way of... It, it just didn't work out for me at that time. And so this became a really amazing opportunity for me to um, basically instead of getting in the room of someone else being the room where I right, made my own work right, okay. um, through Panorama. And that was how I started. So you have your own production company, Panorama. And if we could maybe fast forward then to late 2019 and give us a snapshot of what you were doing at that point with the company, with your work, and what your plans were looking into 2020. Yeah, absolutely. So at that point, um, that was so 2019 was our, our first sort of flagship project, which was the Refugee Orchestra Project. So I'd worked before that with a conductor named Lydia Yankovskaya, mm-hmm. who was the she was the music and still is, I believe, the musical director at Chicago Opera Theater. Mm-hmm. And she started an ensemble called the Refugee Orchestra Project, where basically in whatever city they were in, uh, Lydia would gather. Um, musicians who were refugees to the United States or the children of refugees. And so Lydia came along and basically through our various networks found um, our, our, uh, our new ensemble to create the debut of this, this mm-hmm. orchestra project. 
Um, we even had several members of the, Sy- the, the Syrian National Orchestra who had only just moved to the UK within a wow. year of, the, of, of that production happening. And we, we, pre- we presented our piece at the London Symphony Orchestra's mm-hmm. St. Luke's venue. And that was basically the kickoff for our for our production. That um, was gave us a really great network of sub, of supporters who were really interested and, and excited by our work. And what happened next? Yeah, and so again, like that was my first foray into even sort of direct directing professionally. We'd we'd done a we'd basically t- we'd, we'd pick I'd pick me and Lydia would pick the repertoire of songs and then f- sort of found a through line narrative that would be able to connect that into mm-hmm. a cohesive thing. But I thought, you know, I want to direct plays now at this point. Um, and so I directed um, a production called Afterglow at Waterloo East. After that, that went on for a couple of weeks, and then and then what I was most excited by was and again it was a, a play by. Um, a, another uh, an, an artist that I was so admired in college, named Young Jin Lee, called Straight White Men, and mm-hmm. we and it was at this point that I'd had the track record of a couple of productions that we managed to get that um, scheduled in at Southwark Playhouse for April of 2020, and that was the thing that I was really gearing up for quite a lot at the beginning of the year before disruption, uh, and and. That, that ended up being postponed until very recently, as you know. And so what was the first hint for you that this new story was getting so big that it was going to intrude on your work and, and this production? I, I first really realized that at the auditions for that play. I mean, mm-hmm. we were auditioning in the week before the forced lockdown. I mean, when... Basically, we, we, um, A, we'd lost so, uh, so many people that were scheduled into audition because they had got COVID <laughs> and right. they were very, very sick. So that mm-hmm. came to thinking, wow, this is a lot of people. This is quite serious. Mm-hmm. And then also people coming into the room and not shaking hands. That was the first time I'd gotten an elbow <laughs> from someone. Right. And again, it, right. in an art form that is so contingent on collectivity, community, camaraderie. I mean, we call ourselves lovies. We, even if you've met, right. you've only just met someone for the first yeah. time and you know they work in the theater, you hug them. I mean, yeah. th- that's yeah. just sort of the, 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 the way in our, 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 our weird subculture of humanity is that we're just very, we're, we're very um, uh, love, lovey, loving lovies, basically. And so that it, it was just... Yeah, poets don't do that so much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah right too, too verbal too verbal um, yeah. we, we express with our words um yeah. but no we very much express with with our, our huh, yeah it, uh, yeah it was a, just a very um it, it was to, to think to see such an initial but very significant breakdown and the essential ways that we communicate in the mm. theater um was quite that was the first time i really felt in my body oh something is different right and and then what happened? And then, um, well, we carried on. That was what everyone was telling us to do, you know? I mean, it, it, just like as in 2021, carry on as normal. Because um, mm-hmm. we don't know. Um, because this was before um, Boris Johnson had said, oh, don't go to the theater. Or yeah. we're going to shut down theaters. So we we still had our vested interest in making sure that this project could go off as safely as possible. And then we went into... Um, our, our recalls, I think America, we call them callbacks. Um, mm-hmm. And our choreographer was ill with COVID. And we also, or at least she believed what she believed was COVID at the time because we couldn't yeah. get testing. And again, yeah. um, I think only maybe five people showed up to that audition, but we still tried to carry on. And then by the next day, 
the, the official lockdown had happened. And then I did not enter a rehearsal room in person again for 13 months after that. Wow. And I mean, we can all hear in your voice the warmth. When you talk about the togetherness, the connection, the community that you've experienced in theatre, and that that is the art form that you're you're so passionate about, and it really depends on, on presence in a way that a lot of art forms don't. I mean, what was it like to be suddenly cut off from all of that? I mean, at first, it was actually quite a relief. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, classic introvert, right? I mean, I, I found yeah. that, I, I mean, for me, at least as a director, I thrive on preparation. And mm-hmm. I felt that, again, because at the end of 2019 and the beginning of 2020, I had a series of projects going on that, I think I, I sort of let slip past my fingertips in terms of how much adequate preparation time I could give to those rehearsals. And um, I think I was just quite relieved to actually say, oh, I can get this right now. Um, I can yeah. get it right. I can, get, I, can, mm. I, can, I can conceptualize my work in a more rigorous way. I can really think about the characters I'm trying to get, whose skin I'm trying to get into. Um, so actually, it was quite a lovely first three and a half months, really, even four months, really, where we had beautiful weather, I could go for walks, and um, yes, the world was burning outside, but I had my craft with me. Yeah, and which is again a, a huge fortune as a director because usually your only craft is working in a rehearsal room with actors. But I had that mm-hmm. thing to look forward to on the other side of this. And remembering at this point, we thought this was only going to go on three, four weeks, yeah. max three months. Um, mm. So, and and so then it really started to get quite difficult when I think around September hit and Mm -hmm. we thought oh wait this could be very long time before we can seriously consider safely making our work again together um, as an ensemble um, or just even considering anything new and again and again and this is also at a point where the the industry was 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 really falling apart at the seams. I mean, it was a disaster for freelancers. Again, I've, I mean, I was very fortunate. I mean, I have, I had my partner and our, we, we lived in, we lived in a, a house share where um, our landlords gave us half the rent off at that point. Okay. But again, like streams of income were extremely minimal. And yeah. like, just so again, it was just became an issue of just what do we do from the day to day, let alone um, thinking about projects going on in the future. Um, and at this point, the, the cultural recovery funding had come out. But again, everyone in the industry was after this, this very small pot of funding, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it, it, it just felt very much at that point like you were all applying for the same set of grants that everyone drastically needed, theater support fund, cultural recovery, project yeah. grants. Um, that, that again, in the end, only very few people were able to properly benefit from. And so while the rest of us all sort of had to stay in our house <laughs> a lot of the time, um, I remember at that time, lots of people were exploding their work online, taking shows and putting them on Zoom or on mm-hmm. camera. And there was enough of an appetite that people would go to see the shows, but there was always this sense of bleakness about it, where it just wasn't the same yeah. as the in-person experience. And um, someone said to me, you know, it's a form of mourning. Um, that actually, because this idea that we're so, um, 
Like it's so yes, we're so passionate to get our work out there, but re- but really, I mean, because it, it, a, a lot of these things were shows that were taken from in person to put just straight directly online, yeah. and weren't built for that yeah. space, and it really was just we had lost so much as creatives from in terms of our work, but also our identity, our identity, and our sense of um, of community with one another. That we just we were just finding whatever way we could to get the work out there, and least that's what I was saying, seeing in a period where I was just mostly sitting at home. Yeah. And so at what point did you start to think about pivoting or doing something different with your work? Because, I mean, you you couldn't do the production that you had planned for, prepared for. You Mm. were looking at all the online stuff and thinking, yes, but Mm. you had reservations about that. So what what was your thought process around what you were going to do next? Mm. Well, I mean, I think at that point we were just trying to we were just trying to do what we could with what we already had, which was this play. Mm-hmm. And we had tried, I mean, we and because there was a lot of talk about like, oh, we can adapt new live streaming and finding new ways of of doing all of that. And so, basically, with the theater we were we were programmed at, they actually had they had a set of three cameras that they were using and actually creating beginning to create some really cool stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, with their work and we said, oh, maybe we can adapt our piece to fit this camera work. Um, and then I, re- and then again, and again, we were very lucky that we had this, this foresight from the writer basically saying, you know, the, um, this, this, the play we're doing, it's a comedy. And cause this is back at a point where we still couldn't have audiences in the theater, you know, yeah. saying, I just don't think having a comedy under the camera lens is really a good idea at all. So again, we were sort of amongst the masses trying to take what we had done and put that under camera. Yeah. Um, and saying, oh, actually, I don't think this is going to be, I don't think this is the right call. We just need to wait um, when, until some unknown day in the future where audiences can assemble again. Mm-hmm. And we, and at this point, uh, this is not from the business end, but we basically promised the theater that we would put um, a, a show we, we thought we basically had promised the theater we would put a slot in a, a play into their slot. And obviously, obviously theaters need to still be running in some capacity at that point just to mm-hmm. keep their bases engaged. And so we needed to find something very quickly that we could put in its place. And we and so and so I was thinking, okay, what could work with no audience and just cameras? Um, and that was where I, I got really interested in this. I just film noir kind of idea of something that's more of a thriller, something more inherently dramatic that doesn't rely on the audience energy so explicitly to mm-hmm. work. What really hugs the screen format so well? And we'd asked around, I couldn't read, I wasn't reading and finding anything that really worked. Um, and we couldn't really find any new plays that had come out that was really interesting to us. And I asked um, my, my one friend, Sean McKenna, like, oh, do you have anything? And he said, well, no, I don't. But I wrote this screenplay about 15 years ago mm-hmm. um, that I didn't do anything with, just never really worked out. What do you think? And so I read it and I, it was, I was very captured. It was called Rocky. It was called, it was, it was called Bodily Harm at that point. And so I read this and I got so excited by it because it, 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 it was basically, I thought, oh, we can just cut the, the whole entire first half of this play and then just uh, and take that first half and integrate it into remembering memory-based monologues yeah. throughout the entirety of the second half. And I thought this would be a great thriller in a single room that'll make our heads explode and work great on a film noir thriller style stage. Um, 
And so then that through a series of edits, it became this piece called Rocky Road. Um, that then we uh, yeah, a, a lot of things started to fit, fit together. Then we managed to get the theater. We managed to get um, get working with this actor named Tiger Drew Honey. This brilliant, another brilliant actor named Kristen Foster. Um, every and and the team all fell into place of everyone who was just so hungry after so long to make the best work we could. And yeah. it was the first time we were back into rehearsal in, in March, and um, it was just like touch paper, a really um, extraordinary process. I mean, because again, like, this was about what maybe a two hour and fifteen minute show, mm-hmm. and we rehearsed the whole thing in twelve days, which would be normally really panics um, some prospective collaborators. And even in tech, I mean, we had about 253 cues, which is quite a, a few <laughs> in the, in a tech yeah. process in nine hours of tech. But again, people were just the engine, the, 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 the engine was revved up and ready to go right. for so many people. And it was just an amazing process and a great show that I was very proud of to have made by the end of the lockdowns, basically. And so what did, I mean, I've seen the show, but for the benefit of listeners, tell us about mm. the show that you put on and, and also the, the format that you put it on and, and how you felt that the show and the format worked together in a way that wasn't just taking something designed for, you know, in a live theater and then sticking that mm. on a two dimensional screen. Cause you created quite a different experience, didn't you? Mm. Yeah. So it's called Rocky road. And basically it's a story about, um, a woman who she shows up on a woman named Zoe who shows up on this on, on on this man's doorstep, Danny, who's the building manager of a building that she is now moving into. You quickly learn that, as in any good thriller, she is not who she says she is, mm-hmm. and that you find that you find that that for some unexplained reason, this man has ruined her life ten years ago, and they into that the, the ripples of crime and punishment have really affected both of them quite significantly over the last 10 years. She's here to find out answers as to why he's done what he's done. And, and, and when the, at a certain point, she does not get the answer that really satisfies her. And in fact, the answer she gets quite disturbs her about the way the randomness of the world and how bad things can happen to others. She has to then feel like she just, she feels like she has to destroy what he represents this, uh, this, this, um, unnerving world where being in the wrong place at the wrong time can be such catastrophic, such have such catastrophic outcomes for you. And I just felt we were in a place in the world that just felt very much like that at the time. I mean, this idea of how, why is this happening to, how, to us? How can we explain the COVID thing? Is it a lab? Is it a lab thing? Was it, is it poor government planning? <laughs> yeah. We're all locked yeah. in our houses. Um, yeah. And Feeling and uh, some and so many people's life plans were just quite literally derailed. I mean, some people wanted children and didn't know what, when to work with that. Some people had creative careers they wanted to work towards. Some people had relatives that they wanted more time with. Um, um, that and or some people lost their own health as a result of these lockdowns. And I think yeah. the play really keyed into a character who was really struggling with so many things being so randomly thrown in her direction. Um, and really struggling to come to terms of existing with that. Um, it, it felt very much of an emotional place that we were all in. And I just felt the intimacy of the camera, because again, what's happening is she's going through the story that as you see in typical play format, that's where the camera is more um, further away from you. But then as you start to get into these more monologue mi- mo- um, in-between scene moments, 
the camera starts to be her friend and follow her as if it's a diary of some sort that you as the audience get to be in her private thoughts as a way for her to um, to confide in, express herself, find some sort of outlet for really what she just has is a deep, deep rage at what's happened to her. Um, and then you feel for her, you cry for her, you um, and you go on this journey as she as she as she um, what's the word for it um, spirals into what ultimately becomes a very devastating revenge story. No, and you're and you're asking about the fo- the form of what we did. I mean, like, I mean, our our, our set was was built with them with within in mind for all these typical film filmic tropes that you could never accomplish in the theater so we, mm. had, we basically had four cameras set up into the space and this and the set was designed as um it was uh, it, the, the set itself was one room for an apartment but then yeah. through standard tricks of light became two different apartments and possibly the hallway between them but then things like split screens as one person's on one side of the door and one person's on the other side of the door or um um tricks tricks of appearances and disappearances that you couldn't normally achieve on stage because of where the having the being able to guide not only yeah. where the audience was looking but how close or far away they were looking i think the form of that meant the content of the story but also just created um, film, introduced filmic conventions into theater that weren't possible before, but still in a language that the audience understood, which was quite exciting and quite new. And again, really, we felt like we were discovering something new that wasn't just a play. And that was quite exciting. I mean, what was your experience? Well, I was, that absolutely chimes in with my experience. So first of all, in terms of the theme and the genre, I think it's interesting you said well, a comedy is probably not where we're all at right now. And so you've got this film noir thriller, very claustrophobic. But it wasn't. I mean, it wasn't a. It wasn't a plague piece. It was a different. Without any spoilers, it was a different theme, a, di- a different scenario. But it was certainly close enough to to the sense of claustrophobia and being hemmed in and not being able to get out and pent up emotions that it absolutely resonated. For us and so just for the listener so steve told me about the show and he said you know we're, we're doing it online it's a bit different um and, and and so mammy and i my wife we bought tickets and i always i remember one thing was it wasn't streamed so it's not like netflix it wasn't at your convenience where you can just snack on it turn it on turn it off we had to show up at a certain appointed time because that was when the show was going to start so we had to be it, it had the similar, if, yeah. It had a similar effect. You know, when you go to the theater, you've got to go to the theater, and if you're late, they're not going to let you in because you're going to mess up everyone's experience. So there's a sense that the audience has to show up in the right way. And I remember thinking, well, that you know, we had to make sure our drinks and snacks were all ready, and we we could be there at the beginning, and it it brought a different quality of attention to just you know endless stuff that we'd been streaming during lockdown evenings. And it's really interesting when you talk about bringing in filmic elements. I think I'm not consciously film literate enough to be able to spot all of those tricks. But I certainly had the sense that it it felt like a live theatrical production, but it was actually much more involving. And I guess that's the film, the cinematic techniques that you're talking about that you'd used. That sometimes when you know when you watch, uh, I mean, I've got loads of um, DVDs of live theater productions. And it's great, but they always leave you feeling it, it would have been better if I was there because obviously you, you're more drawn into it. But this really did draw us in. 
<laughs> it was. I think I probably enjoyed the theme more than Mammy. I think it was. I mean, it was. It was pretty dark. Let's put it that way. Mm. And um, it was. It was a really intense evening, and we really felt that we had been on a journey um, in not exactly the same as going to the theatre, but not a million miles away. And it was quite different to sitting at home watching a movie. Mm. And, I, and, I, and I think a lot of it was also happy accidents along the way, which I think is is any work of art, right? Um, mm-hmm. Is 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 uh, what mis- what mistakes or 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 fun occur- fun coincidences happen that make it what it is? I mean, because really, this play—I mean, it was written as a it was written by a playwright who had that theatrical bent to his craft, but wrote this ori- originally as a film meant to be made into a film, right? So I think it already had either subconsciously or consciously embedded into the fabric of that story this natural attachment to a to a screen medium built into what Sean was. And in a way, I think almost the, the hybrid format that it was in was even in, even in a way more powerful than even just a film experience alone or just a theater experience alone. I don't yeah. know if yeah, it, I, I had a, I, I, after, after having gone through it all, I think it, it's actually really hard for me to, to to imagine that story existing quite as comfortably in either one of those two mediums on on their on their own. I mean, we 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 try and talk about it quite a lot, but it's it's just an ongoing conversation. And then and then and in, in terms of all the the, the other. Um, things of like close-ups and split screens and stuff. I mean, that was all a matter of discovery in the rehearsal room thinking, again, because we we spent an entire 13 months just watching Netflix, right? So we all either <laughs> consciously or subconsciously had that film vocabulary in yeah. our heads of what works and what doesn't that we yeah. brought with us into the room. And you always bring that baggage or experience with you. Um, yeah. and, and it it finds its way into your instinct that I think um, really paid off in all the right ways on this show, which was, I, I guess for me, at least in my company, a really great um, send off to what was otherwise a horrible time <laughs> in the in the pandemic. Um, so I'm curious, is, you know, necessity was the mother of invention. You, you did what you could given the circumstances and you came up with this hybrid theatre film live performance. Is there anything of this that you want to carry forward into your future work or is it too early to tell i mean it's it's always early I mean, again like i mean maybe maybe some other artists are more conscious about their decisions than i am but again i always find that my my, my decisions are accidents that come from yeah like you said needing. i think the only reason i even started my company was because i had to find a way to stay here in right. the country right <laughs> i think um i guess like i guess what i would say and maybe maybe as a lesson i would say for myself was just to yeah, whatever limitations you have, really lean into them and mm. use those um, to your advantage. I mean, like for us, the, the only reason this Rocky Road play existed was because we were basically told that it was a horrible idea to have our other play put under a live stream format and think, yeah. okay, what can we do now? You know, it was sort of picking up the pieces from that. Um, my company exists because I needed to find a way to not be uh, um, have the home office knocking on my door, which then led to all other <laughs> other students. Different people are motivated in different ways by different yeah. things, and right. I think what I would say to anyone is to actually say, "How can I use this right. to make what I otherwise do even better?" Yeah, and not to and it's again that's really hard a lot of the right. time saying. Oh, I can't, it's, it's a great way to say, I can't do this. And I'm, I am very much a person who can be prone to pessimism and say, oh, I can't do something because X, Y, Z. But can I, that very thing, what does that allow me to do? What do I get to do because of this limitation? Um, Brilliant. can really flip a lot of things that I'm working on in myself as well. Discover. 
So what about the response, you know, from audiences or and and also in terms of your career? Has it helped you with by opening any doors there? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, again, it, and it, it opened up doors in a way that you wouldn't expect because, you know, normally a theater piece um, that your audience is very much limited by the people in your geographical yeah. area who can see it. Yeah. And so for me, I mean, it builds all kinds of relationships with me. For, I mean, I was able to have um, colleagues in other countries see it, you know, so now I've now developed a relationship with the English theater Frankfurt who was quite excited by what they what, mm. what they had seen there. And I would never have gotten away for them to know my work, at, at least at that point, had it not been for something like that. Yeah. Um, even in California, um, we, we um, a, um, a television producer had seen the play based on a review we'd gotten in The Guardian and approached us to talk about um, other, other possibilities of other types of screen adaptations using that kind of story. Um, as well as other stories that we'd made in the past before. Mm-hmm. Um, and I never worked in screen or even thought about working in film or television before that. And even that has now been the beginnings of several conversations for us in terms of, A, not only just how do we adapt this story to screen work, but yeah. also how um, I can I can expand my practice into other media that, w- that was really necessitated by a pandemic. And then, and then on a personal note, I mean, it was the first professional production my own mother had seen. I mean, she lives all the way in New Jersey, <laughs> right, and right. she she had no idea what I was getting up to it um, all the time while I was three thousand miles away. So I think that was also just quite an exciting experience um, uh, for my for my own for my own family who had always been very supportive, but had no, had, had no idea um, what was it what what I was about or it was interesting me creatively and. Um, no, that, that was something I was, I was very proud of to entertain them. And they got mm. a, a, a very, a, a, a real thrill out of it and, and, and absolutely loved it. And I, I think that was probably the most fulfilling, <laughs> um, outcome on a personal level, Love but you. yeah, no, it's, it's, it was a great avenue for people to sort of see what, um, I can do, our company can do, but also a way for us to expand our practice into other media. Okay. And so picking up on the straight white men production. This was the one that had been halted when the first lockdown came. At what point did you start to think, okay, we may be able to think about bringing this back and getting back into the theatre again? Mm. I mean, we, we like we always waited. Um, we like, and, and I think it it was a really it was really useful to see other productions um, stumbling their way to finding sustainable models for mm-hmm. how we could work in a COVID world. And I think that the summer was a really difficult time, but a really great triumph for theater as well in terms of finding new ways that through testing, through isolation that we could, and understudies that they could find a, a good way to um, can make the show go on, so to speak. And it was in the summer then when we... we and this, this is summer 2021 by this point. Under summer 2021, exactly. Yes, right. Um, and it was at that point seeing shows find their way through that we, we, we gathered as much intel as we could as to how other people were doing what they could and thought, okay, maybe we can do that now too. Um, also wanting to get the show on as, as quickly as possible because it had happened. It, it'd been in, sort of in the back of my mind now for about two years at that point. And so, um, yeah, and, so, and, and then that was, and then we, we basically announced the show in the September Mm-hmm. And then rehearsals began October, and we performed all through November and December. And then Omicron hit. Right. But you managed to finish your run just before Omicron came along. 
just again i i I am one of the very lucky ones in this sense i have not had i have not anyone had anyone in my companies get covid we've not had to have any covid related cancellations or postponements there was one time though that i mean there was an actor who was out for four days because of flu-like symptoms and the terror of that Mm -hmm. was a lot i mean and again that that i think i think we were talking about this before i mean the level of background stress on the production not just from the production team but also for the members of the company the actors i mean that's all it was a lot still through the whole year to think you know just one case and it's over um and again being again we were i think we were all as in the theater, at least again, because 2021, a lot of us were back to work, but it was still quite a difficult year in the sense that um, we were being told to go back to normal when it wasn't normal. Um, yeah. And I think there is, I, 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 again, I am inspired all the time by people who still manage to find ways to make to make it to make it work as as the the virus was sort of wreaking havoc on so many shows. Um, it's a real act of bravery to say I have the audacity to put a show on and make it happen. And what was it like on the first performance with an audience? Um, well, it was it was very live. Um, an audience member passed out actually on the very really? first performance. Um, so maybe they they maybe they weren't as um, as ready to come back to the live experience. Um, right. No, the show actually had to stop halfway through, and um, we had to um, basically take the entire company out. Um, of the space, which again is just so mm. frightening for an actor being in the middle of a scene and having you know someone just plop yeah. right onto the stage yeah, yeah, yeah. in front of them in a very small theater. Um, but the entire audience, they came right back in and were just as enthusiastic to make the make that work happen. And so again, it's not just the actors and the creators; it's the audience who is so thrilled um, to come back. Um, people passing out and all. Um, but yeah, and, and even audiences, I think, are quite on edge at the moment. So you and you also have to take that into account. Yeah, so I can relate to you know what you're saying about audiences being a bit on edge because this I came to see the production. I think was it November or early December? December. December, early December, right? And this was I think only my second trip to London in the two years, and the previous one I hadn't been in any in among any crowd beyond you know being on the tube a bit. And I must admit, when I walked in and sat down in the middle of this crowd of people, I hadn't been in that situation for almost two years. And it was, you know, I had a moment of thinking, is this a good idea? (laughs) Should we be doing this? But also, there was so much joy in that room. I mean, and it's quite in your face, even the pre-show without giving any spoilers. I mean, it's, it's, there was a lot of pumping music. Um, let's just say the visuals from the stage were quite stimulating. It was, but there there was so much energy and joy. And I remember people just applauding and being just thrilled to be there and just feeling that myself. It really, really brought home to me, you know, how much we've missed this and how fantastic it is to be in a a live production and, and something that I don't think I'll ever take for granted again. And you even went to a matinee, and matinees suck usually. But yeah, they they they. It been, was me. It was um, my energy. <laughs> no, no, no. I just I just think it's the general enthusiasm of the public assembling again. You know, I mean, we're we're built for that. So, okay, as one of the you know first productions back after the big interlude, and I know there'll be lots of people listening to this who are putting on productions or considering putting on productions, whether theatrical or musical or or, or of other kinds, any advice or guidance for them, um, things to look out for in this new phase that we're in? 
I mean, I'm just trying to figure out just as much as everyone else. Um, <laughs> I, I, I think, I mean, again, it's just, it's just what I said before, just really be kind to the people in the room with you. Cause again, they've been through just the, the same hell over the last two years as you have very likely, mm-hmm. um, if not worse, if, um, cause I think that a lot of people have had a very tough time and it's, especially for actors, it's so exposing yeah. to come back on a stage again. Um, to create an environment that feels as safe and encouraging and nurturing as possible um, is is the is the best thing you can do, I think, to make and because I think as a, I always feel like the way the the way the company of the actors gets along is very much the energy that the act the audience experience audience experiences, yeah. and so I think to create as much of a welcoming and exciting space. For the actors, will do that. Will create that, recreate that same experience for people like you who come to punt, to punt, basically. To punt. And we need right. people to feel welcome and excited to be back. Yes, especially right now, as we're all struggling to get back on our feet. Yeah, well, I absolutely felt that the minute I walked into the theatre. So, yes, done. I'm done. I can retire. <laughs> <laughs> this would be a lovely point, I think, for you to set the listener your creative challenge. So if you're listening to this and this is the first time you've heard the show, this is the point in the interview where I ask my guest to set you, the listener, a challenge that will stretch you creatively and probably personally as well. So it was something that is on the theme of the interview and that you can complete or at least get started on within seven days of listening to this conversation. So Steve, What's your creative challenge? So I would say take six minutes and just write a list, a list of basically everything that you feel is a limitation to you that's getting in your way, um, that you feel like is stopping you from doing what you want to do creatively right now. And just write down whatever pops in your head. Don't worry if, it's, if, it's, if, it's, if it seems random or if it doesn't make sense. Um, just write whatever comes to you because you might be surprised by what answers you find are getting in your way. Um, and, and, it, it, and this could be inside of yourself or outside of yourself. Everyone has diff- a different relationship to what they feel is holding them back. Um, and I think just figure, and then once you're done with that list, take one or two of those things and say, okay, how is this an advantage? Right. And how can I use that right. in my next venture? Fantastic. I love it. A really hard-won wisdom. Uh, I know this is in relation to the story that you've just told. So, Steve, thank you. That has been really enlightening and inspiring. I'm so glad that you and your colleagues are back on stages. Long may that continue. So, where can people go to find, first of all, to find you online and to find out about your upcoming projects? And do you have anything in the pipeline that you can can tell us to look forward to yes so you can find me i'm part of the creators program at young vic and so if you just google me you'll find my you'll find my my name my information and contact info all there so that's Stephen with a v and then kunis is k-u-n-i-s exactly right okay and what about upcoming projects Yes. So right now I'm um, workshopping a new play by this writer named Andrew Thompson, who he won the, in, the Theatre 503 International Playwriting Award about five mm-hmm. years ago. But this is his second play. 
now called um, Cuts, 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 which is basically about a, um, a junior doctor who um, another man, a man appears to her who is in quite a great deal of pain. And she realizes she tries to help him and can't touch him. It's this magical realism story where actually they realize they have to learn the rules of how they can engage with each other, how she can help him, how he can help himself. Huh. And they start to fall in love then in this really at first touching, but then very dysfunctional, harrowing way. And what you soon realize, it's not just a story about a doctor and a patient or about um, a, a toxic romance. It's about our relationship to the NHS um, and huh. how in a world where we ourselves feel so oversubscribed or run down, how we could possibly even think to help someone else or give them what they need, um, which again is another COVID times thing that feels very, very timely. And he wrote the play before really? COVID. And the, oh. yeah, that metaphor of these two um, beings who cannot touch one another for some unexplained magical real reason um, just came through Andrew's subconscious and found its way and uh, really resonating in the midst of a global pandemic. And again, I found that so exciting and prescient and really something. Okay. And we're hoping to get that on at the Edinburgh Festival later this year. Great. So thank you so much, Steve, for sharing, as I said, your very hard-won wisdom and your really inspiring response that you came up with to the constraints that you're under. And as I say, fingers crossed that um, from now on, the show will go on. Thank you very much. Yes, the, the show must go on, as they say. <laughs> the show must, and indeed it will. You have been listening to the 21st Century Creative, hosted by Mark McGuinness. You can find the notes for today's episode with more about my guest, as well as all the backlist episodes at 21stCenturyCreative.fm. If you enjoyed the show, then I hope you will subscribe in Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, and take a few seconds to swipe and leave a rating for the show. If you would like to take the 21st Century Creative Foundation course to help you carve out an original creative career, you can sign up and get the whole course for free at 21stCenturyCreative.fm slash free course. And if you are an experienced creative and you're curious about getting my help as a private coaching client, then the first step is to go to 21stCenturyCreative.fm slash coaching questions and answer the questions on that page. Thank you for listening. I hope you'll join me again soon.